Hello, and welcome to Spur Radio, featuring the best of the Spur Festival, a national festival of politics, art, and ideas. I'm Michael Booth, director of production for Spur and host of the Spur Radio podcasts. This episode, Risk in the Economy, takes us to the 2017 edition of Spur Toronto and features a conversation with John Coates, Sheila Kohatkar, moderated by Dilip Soman. As the U.S. looks set to repeal the Dodd-Frank Act put in place to regulate Wall Street after 2008, Spur asks, how is financial risk quantified by those within the system? And what are the human factors, gut feelings, hormones, and or emotions that impact that? From risky lending practices to packaged financial instruments like mortgage-backed securities no one really understood, the post-mortem on the financial crisis revealed the degree to which human irrationality, bias, and cognitive errors drove the financial decisions of those at the top. Spur explores the confluence of economic psychology and neuroscience that influence human decision-making in a sector whose actions dictate the well-being of the world. Risk in the Economy was recorded live at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education on April 9, 2017. The panel is introduced by me, Michael Booth, the Spur Festival's Director of Production. We hope you enjoy it. So, risk and the economy. I think that pretty much says it all right there. And we've got wiser heads than mine who are going to delve into the topic. And we are going to uh, start off with our uh, moderator, Dilip Soman, a behavioral scientist who does research on interesting human behaviors and applications to um, choice architecture, consumer welfare, policy, and financial literacy. He is a professor at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto, with whom we have partnered in presenting events in the past, and the director of the university's India Innovation Institute and the coordinator of the Behavioral Economics and Action Research Cluster. I'd ask you to welcome him and John Coates and Sheila Kolhatkar, our panelists for today, and we'll have a great conversation on risk and the economy. Thank you. All right. Uh, I was a doctoral student at the University of Chicago back in 1993, and I took my comprehensive examinations uh, in behavioral sciences. And one of the questions on that exam, which was a two-day take-home question, was what is risk? Question mark. And that was it. Uh, and so I've clearly been thinking about this issue for a number of years. It's not clear that my thinking has evolved a whole lot. But I do remember writing back then uh, about the evolution about how we've come about to think about risk. I guess you think way back enough, our ancestors who lived in the caves, uh, to them, risk was an instinct. They had, they had to stay safe, they had to forage for food by instinct. Uh, they kind of kept track of uh, potential dangers in the environment. Then the statisticians came along and the economists came along. There's a guy in particular called Daniel Bernoulli, uh, who started writing about risk as probability. It's a very mathematical way to think about risk. The likelihood that something's going to happen is a function of how many times that thing happens uh, divided by the total number of things that are going to happen. That's another way of thinking about risk. There's a third way. The psychologists came to the table in the 1980s and 1990s, talked about risk as feelings, talked about risk as a sense of not knowing, as a, as a strength of your belief. And then uh, we've turned full circle with John Cole, who uh, has taken us back to physiology and, and tried to get us to think about risk as physiology, as actual uh, changes in, in the human body. Uh, so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to have each of our panelists talk for about 10 to 15 minutes on their respective positions. We'll get into a discussion, uh, and as Michael said, we'll then open up the floor uh, for questions and comments. 
Let me briefly tell you a little bit about our two panelists. I mean, I could, I could read this entire stack of papers that describes all of their accomplishments, or uh, I could give you three bullet points for each of them, and I think I'll do the latter in the interest of time. Uh, John Coates uh, was a research fellow at Cambridge University in neuroscience and finance, if you can imagine those two things uh, put together. But in, in, in his past life, he's ran a trading desk for Deutsche Bank. He has traded derivatives for Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he's also the author of The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, How Risk-Taking Transforms Us, Body and Mind, which I think is a very interesting uh, perspective on, uh, on risk. Uh, also with us today is uh, Sheila Kolhatkar. Uh, Sheila is a staff writer at New Yorker, a former hedge fund analyst, and her uh, most recent book uh, is called Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Men on Wall Street. There's a beautiful review of this on, uh, in the New York Times, and uh, the New York Times does a lovely quote from Lemony Snicket, of all people, when they say that if you're interested in stories with happy endings, this is not the book that you want to read. Right? Uh, and so we'll start probing uh, Sheila a little bit later on uh, for her take on the book. But for now, uh, I'm going to invite John Coates to tell us a little bit about risk all right. the human body. My name's John Coates. I'm a reformed master of the universe. Um, <laughs> uh, as I described, I, um, I started, I did a PhD in economics at Cambridge and then went off to Wall Street, um, traded derivatives for Goldman Sachs and ended up running my own desk at Deutsche Bank. And then in an act of irrational exuberance, I walked away from a managing directorship on Wall Street and took up the minimum wage job of science, retrained in physiology. And ever since, I've been... Um, running experiments on hedge fund trading floors where we wire up traders head to foot with electronic wearables. And we'll do this 24 hours a day, weeks at a time. We're also taking tissue samples, hormone samples, sampling their immune system, etc., and then correlating this physiology data with high-frequency performance data like their P&L, which stands for profit and loss, their VAR, which stands for value at risk, etc., volatility of the market. And I'm going to be telling you a bit about that today. Um, before I launch into that, I just want to, you're just told that one of the questions our moderator had when, uh, as a student, what is risk? There was a um, magazine article in Britain a few years ago about famous, you know, you've probably heard of these famous entrance exams to Oxford and Cambridge, where they ask these kids absolutely impossible questions and see how they handle them. And one of the questions was, what is risk? And some brilliant student had written, this is. <laughs> <laughs> I had known that back in 1993. Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the kid got in. I think another one of the questions was, is this a question? One of the kids answered, if this is an answer. <laughs> so it, it, anyway, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't resist throwing that in. It's got nothing to do with my talk. But at any rate, so I was in the thick of it um, on Wall Street. I was taking huge amounts of risk, and I was in a very analytical part of, of Wall Street, fixed income derivatives. Everybody I worked with, particularly at Goldman, um, you know, was coming out of string, uh, super string theory and physics, quantum physics, mathematics, engineering, upper reaches of finance. It was an extremely cerebral field. Everything we did was very analytic. So there was a very close connection between what I was doing and all the theories that have been formulated about what is going on when I was doing what I was doing. The trouble is I could never bring the two of them together. Because it seemed to me that when I was taking risk, there was this whole physical dimension to my experience that had never been discussed anywhere. Um, when I was on a winning streak, I, be I transformed. I became delusional. I thought any thought I had was going to be true. Anything I did would work out. And this delusional behavior I noticed in other colleagues on the trading floor when they too were on a winning streak. 
And this sort of physical transformation, which in my book I call the hour between dog and wolf, it's an ancient Latin expression, it really feels narcotic. I don't know if you've ever been on a winning streak in your own fields, but if you're caught up in it, it doesn't feel like it's anything psychological nor anything informational. It feels narcotic. It feels like there's a molecule in your blood that's changing you into a, into a different creature, from something tame into something wild. During crises, we would all just freeze up in risk aversion. You know, we could see that there was a right trade, but it's like there's this force field stopping us from picking up the phone and executing the trade. This, too, felt something more profound and transformational than anything that could be accounted for through information theory or economic theory or financial theory. So it was at that point I realized that this physical dimension to trading, this, this experience that put you on a roller coaster, was probably not just some innocent extra counterpart to the risk-taking. It was it's actually you know, an inherent part of it. And it was at that point I realized that, that I wanted to study this. And so I went back to Cambridge, retrained in physiology, and ever since then I've been working with the Department of Medicine running these experiments I told you about. I have to tell you, it was a really wonderful experience, mostly because I teamed up with medical researchers. And the biggest shock that, that I experienced was when dealing with medical researchers was finding out that the way they do science is really different from the way most other people do science, at least in the social sciences. Because when I went to Wall Street with a PhD in economics, I didn't realize how much baggage I had taken with me. And when you think about risk in the markets, chances are you're using models that are so theory-heavy that they've never actually been tested really rigorously. But when you start working with medics, the first thing you notice is that, A, it's the most successful of the human sciences by a long shot. Two, their standards of scientific rigor are unparalleled. And three, they have no theory. There is no theory in medicine. And so when I started working with them, I found out that if you want to do true science, you really have to throw yourself and your fate onto your data. And you just follow the data wherever it leads. I mean, that's what science does. It takes our, our accepted beliefs, our baggage, and shreds them. The earth is round. Um, space is curved, spooky action at a distance of quantum physics. These are bizarre ideas, and we only got driven there because the data supported them. So when you do that kind of science, you're like a fish with a hook in its mouth, being dragged in directions you never thought you would go and never want to go, and you get tossed up onto strange shores. And that started happening with me as soon as we started running these experiments. And I think the strangest discovery, and the one that did the most violence to the baggage I was carrying, not only from economics, and formal finance, a real blow to any kind of philosophical conception I had of a human being was to find out that it's a misconception that the brain is designed to think. It's not. That's not what your brain is for. If you look at the anatomy of the brain, if you look at the evolution of the brain, comparative anatomy between us and other species, what you learn is that this larger brain that we grew is there for one purpose and one purpose mainly, and that is to plan and execute movement. The reason we have a brain and plants don't is that we move and they don't. If you don't need to move, you don't need a brain. And I thought, this just cannot be right. I mean, that's just a really bizarre idea. But the more I learned about the people working, had sort of made this shift onto a different model of what a human being is and what a brain is, it really started to make sense to me. And it's also really bizarre to think that the you know, what is at the pantheon of human excellence, at the top of the pantheon of human excellence, isn't so much the products of pure mind as Plato and Descartes would lead us to believe. It's our bloody movements. We can do movements that no other animal can do. More importantly, we can do movements that no machine can do. 
Our movements are unbelievable. Our body and brain evolved together. We grew a larger brain, not so that we could engage in pure thought. We grew a larger brain to control the more sophisticated set of muscles. And if you start looking at humans that way, it changes the way you understand what's going on when you think. Because really what your brain is doing when you take in information or think through a train of thought is that silently, behind the scenes, it's preparing you for movement. Even if you're sitting in a chair, it's still preparing you. It takes in a piece of information, it changes your heart rate, your breathing. It changes the recruitment of glucose and free fatty acids from your liver and muscles and it flushes them into your blood. It shunts blood from one set of muscle groups to the other. It puts your immune system on high alert. We are not like computers. We don't take information dispassionately. For us, information is always physical. Every train of thought, every piece of information comes coupled with changes in your body. So we started working with this model and in one of our um, first experiments, we were looking at the stress hormones. Stress hormones, you probably think, are there to um, spike into your blood when something nasty happens to you. That's not really what the stress response is. It's a bit of a misconception. There's nothing more nasty about the stress than this. It's a metabolic and cardiovascular preparation for impending movement. So it sort of spikes up in conditions of uncertainty, for example, because in conditions of uncertainty, you don't know what to expect. You marshal this preparatory stress response, so you're prepared for movement when the unexpected happens. And in one of our first experiments, we are looking at the reaction of these stress hormones to uncertainty in the financial markets. And we took stress hormone samples across an entire trading floor in the city of London, and we recorded the volatility of the market and then when we did the lab work, I almost fell off my chair because the stress hormones and the volatility in the market were tracking each other tick for tick with an R-squared, if you pardon the statistics, of, of 0.86. This was just unbelievable to look at these two plots. Now, I wish we'd had PowerPoint here, but what's going on when you look at this plot is there's a bottom line, which is a, a measure of the amount of information coming into the market. And the top plot are the levels of a molecule in your blood. So I started saying that when you receive pieces of information, your body reacts to it. This was the most beautiful, large-scale example of how the physiology across the trading floor was tracking information levels tick for tick. In that study, which was published by the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, which was you know, a dream come true for me, I just quit Wall Street, it was my first science paper after retraining, there were about 270 cortisol samples behind that um, study. We replicated the study, because you still don't know whether it... I mean, the, the stats were killer, but you don't know whether the experiment replicates. So that was done before the credit crisis. We replicated the experiment after the credit crisis, in fact, in the, the final days of the European sovereign debt crisis, and with 450 samples in all, and we got an R-squared of 0.81. Completely different market, completely different company, different traders. It was a perfect replication. So this is something that's taking place, not only in the traders. It didn't matter whether they were making or losing money. They didn't even have to be trading. They just had to be looking at the news, and their body did what it's designed to do, and that's prepare them for the unknown. And it's happening to all of you when you read the news. Isn't that bizarre? Now, when you find something like that in a piece of field work, because this was basically field work. Um, normally field work is done in Africa or out in the prairies or wherever, but... This was done on a trading floor, but it's still field work. It's hard to like, know whether it's... Is that important or not? You know, if it turned out that the traders were getting sweaty palms when the volatility went up, you know, big deal. The only way you find out whether it's important or not is you have to then do more controlled lab work. We went back to Addenbrooke's Hospital in England, and my colleagues in medicine 
looked at the cortisol profile of the trading desk and said, you know, the cortisol levels, cortisol is the main stress hormone produced by the adrenal glands which sit on top of your kidneys. They said, you know, the cortisol levels on this trading floor have gone up 68% over a two-week period. Now, there's a big difference between an acute and a chronic stressor. Acute stress, like playing tennis, watching a horror movie, going on a roller coaster ride, is highly enjoyable. We like it. You know, humans love taking risks. They love acute stressors. But if a stressor lasts longer than a few days, if a couple of weeks at the most, it turns chronic. And the stress response, which is there just to prepare you for movement, turns toxic. And in the brain, these elevated levels of cortisol can cause clinical depression, um, anxiety. They can change your native search algorithm, so you no longer like novelty, you want familiarity. And they change your memories. The very memories you recall when you're looking at the risks in a trade change. So when you're chronically stressed and you have these elevated levels of cortisol, you selectively attend to negative precedents, nasty things that have happened to you in the past. So we suspected that these cortisol levels rising and falling on the trading floor were actually changing the risk preferences of the traders. And that's what brings us to the nub of this, this, this panel and this talk, and that's risk. Because that took us into some very tricky waters, because almost every single model in economics and finance is built on the assumption that your risk preferences don't change. You reach adulthood, your risk preferences stabilize. It's like the color of your eyes, your height, and they don't change. This underlies every single model in economics and finance. And you know what? It's never been tested. It was the, they made the assumption, because they originally, in classical economics, they needed the assumption for rational choice, to build this rational choice architecture. Just because you need an assumption doesn't mean it's right. And it's actually never really been tested. So what we did is we went back to Addenbrooke's hospital and we replicated these cortisol profiles in a group of volunteers using hydrocortisone tablets, which is a synthetic form of cortisol. So half the group of 40 volunteers got hydrocortisone for two weeks, designed to take their cortisol levels up 68% over two weeks, just as we saw on the trading floor. They didn't do a two-week washout period, then two weeks of placebo. The other half of the group did the opposite schedule. This was a classic clinical trial, only doing it you know, for a different purpose. At the beginning and end of each schedule, we gave people state-of-the-art risk-taking tasks from which we could extract their risk preferences. And after the first day of hydrocortisone treatment, which is the acute stressor, there was no change in risk preferences. But as these cortisol levels stayed elevated and went from an acute exposure to a chronic exposure, we saw that risk aversion or risk appetite collapsed enormously, about 48%. And this wasn't even really a big increase in volatility that brought on this change in risk preferences. It was actually a small, about a 10% increase in volatility. Can you imagine what happened to those cortisol levels and to risk appetite during the credit crisis when volatility on the VIX, which is an index of volatilities in the New York Stock Exchange or, the New or American um, equities, went from 12% to 80% and stayed there for a year and a half? We think the cortisol levels became so elevated in the financial community that risk aversion became absolute. We think the financial community was 100% risk averse. They were incapable of taking risk, which is why we needed TARP. The state had to step in and buy all the risky assets that the financial market was no longer capable of buying. An interesting study came out just after the credit crisis, an epidemiological study, which showed a declining incidence of cardiovascular disease in Britain over the previous 10 years. But they found an anomaly in the data. There was this very pronounced downtrend in cardiovascular disease. But in 2008-2009, in London, in the city, there was this massive spike in cardiovascular disease with an extra 2,000 deaths due to heart attacks. That was this cortisol mechanism at work. So 
the cortisol, this spike in cortisol caused by the, 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 the credit crisis, not only was causing absolute risk aversion, it was causing immune disorders, cardiovascular disease. It was killing people. It's just that we never put the financial phenomena together with the medical phenomena. You go to a university and financial pathologies are sent off to the economics department or the business school. The cardiovascular disease is sent off to the department of medicine, the psychiatric disorders to the department of psychiatry. But we're not like that. We don't divide like that. The risk aversion and the cardiovascular disease were two symptoms of the same underlying condition. And that was this massive increase in stress hormones due to the uncertainty. I find that absolutely fascinating that you can bring together medicine and finance in that way. So, importantly, your risk preferences are changing. They change all the time. They change rapidly. They change substantially. And it's your physiology that's, doing the cha- that's causing the changes. What we found, <clears throat> we gave the, the traders who are experiencing this pronounced increase in cortisol questionnaire, are you stressed? And you know what? Psychologically, they weren't stressed. They had no idea this was taking place. What's more, their psychological answers as given on the questionnaires didn't track any of the risks, not their P&L, not the variance of P&L, not the volatility of the market, nothing. The answers to the questionnaires were just noise, but their physiology was tracking their objective risk tick for tick. It was absolutely incredible, and it's kind of a standard finding in physiology that the physiology and the psychology don't track each other except at extremes, and it's the physiology that's predicting the performance. So when I saw the the results of our, our experiments, I had a wild surmise. I thought, is it possible that the people who can sense these physical changes the best make the better traders. In other words, the people who are more sensitive to their bodies have gut feelings. And that took us into a really interesting area of physiology called interoception. Uh, Charles Sherrington, who got the Nobel Prize in Physiology, divided your sensory system into three branches. Exteroception, which is your monitoring of the outside world through sight, sound, touch, etc. Proprioception, that's joint angle and body position. You can close your eyes and still know your, body, your joint angles. But the third branch, which is relatively unstudied, um, is interoception. And that's the sensory apparatus you have for monitoring your internal world. So when you receive a piece of information, you prepare your body, and then there's all this listening device that is sensing these changes in your body and bring it back up to consciousness through a process called interoception, or what we call more colloquially gut feelings. So we had um, a team of medics come onto a trading floor to test the traders to see how sensitive they were to signals from their body. This was just published about two months ago, um, and it was just blanket press coverage. It was on the front page of the FT, front page of the business section, New York Times. Because what we found is that, first of all, the traders were off the charts in their ability to sense signals from their body. There's two other populations in the, in, that have got very high sensitivity to signals from their body. One are elite athletes because they use this information to pace themselves across a long sporting event. Because like a Formula One racing car, you want to cross the finish line with an empty tank. For every pound of fuel you're carrying extra, you're slowing down, you're wasting energy. So ideally, you want to be able to cross the finish line with an empty tank. F1 cars do it, Airplanes do it now with sensors all over them. Humans do it as well, except that we have far more sophisticated machinery than anything out there in F1 or in avionics. And the other population is um, patients with anxiety disorders and panic attacks because they're very sensitive to signals from their body. We found that the traders were outperforming even the elite athletes. We found that within the cohort of traders, their sensitivity to bodily signals predicted the relative P&L. And lastly, it was predicting how long they, f- they lasted in the market. So we found that the more sensitive they were to the signals from their body, the longer their careers were. The market 
is selecting for these traits and nobody knows it. And I just find that absolutely amazing. That is the goal of science, to find out things you never knew before and that shred your every preconception. So with that, I think I'll stop. Thank you very much. Thank you. So lots of interesting things there, John. The, the one uh, that struck out at me was that the brain is not designed to think. <laughs> uh, you should not walk down St. George because we have a large cognitive science department there that might not agree. I, that when, was but, a bit of a soundbite <laughs> thing to say. I'll probably, I could really get roasted for that but, one. But it is interesting. And I think uh, I'm a behavioral economist by training, and a lot of people think behavioral economics is all about studying how poor people are at making decisions, how irrational they are. And I just think that's the wrong way to think about it because I don't think the human brain was designed to solve complex intertemporal functions or come up with risk assessments. Uh, it was designed for the simple things we talked about. It was designed for foraging. It was designed for safety. And I think in a, you know, the idea that getting, expecting people to be economically irrational is irrational. Uh, and I think that kind of meshes with what you were saying. Uh, so that, that was uh, John uh, telling us about the hour between dog and wolf. Uh, Sheila, it's dark. Uh, there's people going to prison. What's going on? So I wrote a book called Black Edge that's about a very successful, perhaps the most successful hedge fund trader of our time. And he, in many ways, is a living embodiment of so many of the things that John just explained to us. Um, and I'll, I'll give you a brief sort of overview of his story. In the 50s, uh, a gentleman named Steve Cohen was born to a large middle-class family in uh, Great Neck, Long Island, and um, was at this time particularly an affluent commuter town, uh, a lot of very wealthy families there. Steve Cohen's family was not one of the wealthy families. It was very, they were very middle class, and his father ran a garment manufacturing firm. Little Steve was very smart, and he, he uh, decided, well, I really want to get rich. I'm going to go to Wall Street. I can see Manhattan, you know, from, from here on Long Island. I'm going to go there and make my fortune. And the moment he decided he wanted, do, wanted to do this is the moment when the world sort of shifted to kind of decide that this was going to be the kind of work that we were going to reward more highly than almost any other job in our society. So just at the moment, it became an opportune market condition to become a hedge fund manager. Steve Cohen kind of got into it. So um, he went to Wharton. He graduated from Wharton a semester early, and he started working at a small brokerage firm called Gruntle. You know, it was sort of a B-level investment firm. But Steve Cohen arrived there one day, and he was supposed to uh, be working on an options arbitrage desk. The great thing about options arbitrage at that time was that it was this very low-risk activity where basically one guy who had hired Mr. Cohen had figured out that you could, because the options market, options, options are sort of a contract you can buy to bet on the price of a stock in the future. This was a brand-new market. There weren't very many people trading options at the time. And Steve Cohen's boss had figured out, well, um, you can actually buy, buy options on one market and sell stock in another market and make a spread, make a price difference between them. You know, if you, if you do the math fast enough, and it's actually a riskless trade, and it kind of closes out at the end of the day. Steve Cohen got there, and he said, well, this is boring. I don't want to just do a no-risk options arbitrage. This is completely boring. And he immediately sat down in front of his screen, and using this gut kind of instinct that John was talking about, he started day trading. And he allegedly, according to the people working with him at the time, was just amazing at this. He could look at the prices and sort of figure out, oh my God, this is what's going to happen. And he just started making money, thousands of dollars a day right away. And everyone around him was sort of 
astonished by his incredible talent for this. I mean, it's, it's pretty rare. And very quickly, he started to make so much money that the firm he was working for, Gruntel, just sort of said, okay, here you go, do whatever you want. Whatever you're doing, it's working. You're making all this money. At one point, someone told me that you know, he was possibly generating the largest bundle of profit at the whole company. So they didn't want to restrict him in any way. He was clearly very good at taking risk and managing risk and made many, many millions of dollars. Then in 1992, he decided, well, I am tired of uh, working at this big institution. I could do much better on my own. I'm going to start a hedge fund, which was the natural thing at that time for someone like him to do. So off he went uh, with a group of his friends. They raised $25 million, and they started trading away every day. Cohen's hedge fund, SAC Capital, was enormously successful. It charged uh, some of the highest fees in the hedge fund business because he had such a good reputation. And because he reached such size so quickly, and he was trading so much, uh, all of the other actors in the capital markets really had to cater to him. You know, he suddenly had sort of everyone really just trying to, trying to cater to give him preferential treatment, connect him with their best analysts. If he demanded to have access to a certain piece of information before another client, they would try and accommodate his request. And other people in the market started to mimic him. You know, if, if word got around that he was buying or selling a particular stock, everyone would say, oh, Stevie's doing X, you know, and the, the people would follow what he was doing. So he, he became kind of secretive because it really wasn't helpful to have everyone else just copying you. It would sort of quickly eat up your profit. And uh, meanwhile, he's just minting money. And over the course of his hedge fund's lifespan, he achieved a 30% average annual return which is remarkable. I mean, anyone who's worked in this industry knows it's very, very hard to do that year after year. Some years he would make 100%, 50, 70, some year 15, but on average 30%, which just stunning. His, his competitors were baffled. How was he doing this? What was his secret sauce? So he's very, very successful at this. He um, ultimately, you know, anticipated a lot of changes in the, in the hedge fund industry in a very clever way. He evolved his firm over time. He would, he would notice when, um, you know, when the hedge fund industry became much more competitive, he said, okay, well, I need to find a new advantage. You know, I need to find a new edge. Uh, so he decided he was going to hire research experts to come and work at his hedge fund. Instead of just day trading on their gut, they were going to bring in all of these really smart, kind of Ivy League educated um, experts in biosciences or in technology or manufacturing. So he kind of built almost his own research gathering operation because um, really he knew that he needed information to make his trades. And that was like the lifeblood of this particular part of the hedge fund world. They were all out there every day trying to anticipate stock price movements on a short-term basis. And he did this very successfully for a long time. SAC was, was uh, really kind of an iconic company on Wall Street, the envy of the industry, also an uh, object of sort of suspicion for a lot of people who couldn't understand how they made so much money. Uh, but at its peak, it had over $10 billion under management. And Steve Cohen, uh, he still lives in a 36,000-square-foot house and uh, has his own ice rink, and he um, regularly spends $100 million on a, on a painting or a sculpture. And he goes to the Hamptons by helicopter, and he has the lifestyle that you would expect. One day, the government decided, well, we, we don't really know what's going on in the hedge fund world, and uh, what are these people doing, and why do they have so much money? 
and how did this happen? And the SEC was only regulating this industry lightly. So around 2006, when the hedge fund industry was really just, had just gone through this very steep period of explosive growth, some agents in the FBI's market fraud office in New York said, okay, we're going to just kind of check out what's going on in this industry. We, we'd like to know if everything's on the up and up. And they started to poke around. They, they read books on what hedge funds were, and they, they started to do interviews. A lot of people kind of said to them, well, you need to, you know, there's a lot of like wrongdoing going on. A lot of people cutting corners. No one's been paying attention. Uh, the risk of prosecution for committing crime in, in this industry has been very low. There have been very few criminal cases brought against hedge funds and hedge fund traders for years. So in that environment, people started to feel more and more comfortable to push farther into the gray zone of what, what they're supposed to be doing. Uh, in order to stay ahead of their competitors. Once the FBI sort of heard more about this, they said, okay, well, we're going to really need to kind of get very aggressive if we want to root out this corruption. So they decided they were going to apply the methods they had used previously to investigate organized crime. So they start using wiretaps, and they start finding confidential informants, and they start approaching guys standing in line at Dunkin' Donuts and saying, hey, you know, we have a tape of you doing something illegal. You've got to help us. So they get all these guys to flip and start uh, wiretapping their friends, and it's really just this incredible exploding investigation. And uh, it, it led to the arrest of Raj Rajaratnam, who is a prominent hedge fund manager, much smaller than Steve Cohen, but he was arrested and charged with insider trading and along with dozens of other people. While they were doing this, they kept hearing you think what I'm doing is bad, well, you should check out SAC. Oh my God, they're the worst, and everyone thinks they're up to no good. But of course, um, you know, they heard a lot of anecdotal evidence about this, but they weren't quite sure what was going on. So they kind of focused their energy on burrowing deeper into this one particular hedge fund, which everyone was telling them was sort of the pinnacle of both success, but also perhaps the dark side of this industry and what had happened. One day, uh, the FBI went down to Florida and arrested a very high-level former employee of Steve Cohen's. That, was, that happened at the end of 2012, after years of kind of investigating and gathering evidence. And they accused him of essentially paying money to a prominent doctor, an elderly, very accomplished Alzheimer's researcher, in order to get money, I mean, to get information about a uh, drug trial result before it was public. And the government alleged that he had used this information to earn $275 million in profits and avoided losses at this hedge fund, SAC. And it became very clear at that moment that they were going to possibly try to take down Cohen himself. You know, they were trying to link him to this case of this underling. They were clearly pressuring this former employee of Steve Cohen's to turn on his former boss. And uh, that is the moment when I personally became um, very interested in this story because it seemed to me that the government preparing to take down this titan of Wall Street, one of the richest people in the world, that is just something that doesn't happen. I mean, we don't see that. We still don't see it. Steve Cohen was like a reptile. This is what people said to me. He could just, he could have a huge risk in his portfolio and sleep like a baby. He had no trouble living with that. And he would look for that in his employees. He would interview potential traders and he would say to them, tell me about the biggest risk you took. He wanted people who showed through their life story, their hobbies, whatever it was, uh, that they liked taking risk. And he also actually loved hiring former uh, athletes, you know, college level Olympic athletes. This was a big thing that he did. 
and he had a um, psychiatrist working inside his hedge fund to help his traders become better risk takers. And one thing that drove Steve Cohen crazy is when he had a smart portfolio manager, but the guy was too cowardly to kind of make his trades on a large scale. You know, he'd have an employee who would have a really good idea about betting on Intel next quarter, whatever it was. But he was too worried about losing money, so he would only bet, you know, $7 million instead of $30 million on this trade. And Steve Cohen would be very frustrated by that. And he would say, well, listen, if this is a good idea, you should just go big. But this was constant struggle in his office. So we had this psychiatrist there to try and coach them on how to be more aggressive about their risk. Now, at the same time, um, he was also very strict about taking losses. And he was very good at realizing when something, when you, you know, you had been proven wrong and just cutting your losses without letting your emotions get into it. And as John could explain, one of the biggest problems traders have is that they become emotional when something goes the wrong way and they start to lose money. They get really upset and they start to convince themselves, oh my God, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. And they don't sell it and they'll ride it all the way down. But Steve Cohen was very good at this. Ultimately, uh, you know, Steve Cohen had proved to be so adept at managing risk that he had um, largely insulated himself from some of the you know inappropriate behavior of his employees and it was extremely he was very careful and in the end after all this you know incredible suspense built up and the press was watching and TV cameras were there uh, the government decided that they didn't have enough evidence to charge Steve Cohen after all of this and uh, they ended up indicting his company instead of him. The company shut down and he had to pay $2 billion in fines to resolve these charges. And he had to promise not to manage any investor money for five years. So that period is actually going to end at the end of this year. But he, I think he proved to be one of the smartest risk takers uh, of our time. Fascinating yeah. stuff. I mean, it's yeah. just absolutely amazing. The 30% returns, the billions and billions, I mean, it's just... Uh, it, it's stunning. A couple of things jumped up when both of you were speaking. I think one sort of a relatively easy question, the other one not as easy. Uh, and so I'll toss the two of them out and maybe I'll let the two of you take a crack at that. You alluded, Sheila, to gender differences, the idea that you know, most of the hedge fund world is male-dominated. Do we know in general what the gender differences look like in risk-taking? Is there any evidence you've come across, any anecdotal stuff? So that's, that's sort of the less difficult question. Here's the other one that I think is a trickier one, which is how should we be thinking about risk for the economy? Is it a vice? Is it a virtue? Uh, are there optimal levels? Are they, how should we be thinking about encouraging the right amount of risk-taking? So, The first one, well, yeah, I know I have things to say about both. But so, uh, well, I, did, I wrote a, a few years ago, I wrote a piece for New York Magazine called What If Women Ran Wall Street? And the question I posed in that article was, okay, we just had this massive financial crisis, largely due to the fact that all these banks had taken on enormous risk to the housing market. And apparently no one had inside these banks had said, well, housing prices might stop going up. Maybe we should think about the, you know, no one had pointed this out or followed the, anyone's advice about this. So we had this huge blow up. And I went around and actually talked with uh, Dr. Coates about this too. And I said, well, if they'd had more women around, would this have mitigated uh, some of the problems? And it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but actually I think there was some truth to it. There was a real lack of um, divergent opinion that asserted itself in the lead up to this crisis. You had these very 
homogeneous trading floors, mostly young men working, you know, often kind of all working with the same worldview, uh, very few outsiders asking tough questions. And the people who were attempting to blow the whistle were often silenced or sidelined, and there are many examples of this. I, perhaps John can speak to the biological differences, but I think, I think there are some differences, and they've certainly shown that funds that have more women tend to be a little more moderated about their risk-taking. So. Yeah, I was yeah. in that article, wasn't yeah, I? Yeah, you were, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You absolutely were. And it was a huge, it got a lot of attention. I remember it was quite yeah. controversial. Um, there's sort of interesting, a funny story about the, behind that. Um, one, of the, one of the main things I wanted to explain when I left Wall Street was, you know, I mentioned that there was this molecule that caused traders on a winning streak to become kind of crazed, more from something tame into something more crazy, from dog to wolf. And I went searching for that molecule as my first experiment on a trading floor. And I was working with an, an animal model called the winner effect, because they'd found in animals that an animal that's won a, a fight or a competition is statistically more likely to win the next round of competition it goes into. And this has been robustly tested in about two dozen animal species. Um, and they thought, this is remarkable, this sort of mechanism of empowerment, what's driving it? And they found out that it was testosterone and the androgenic mechanisms more generally. It's kind of the role of a testosterone in your body is to prepare you for these competitions. So an animal wins a, a fight, its testo levels spike up, goes into the next round basically on anabolic steroids and wins the next round and, and the testo levels bump up again. And the same thing happens in athletes. You know, we have Harvard within us, which is basically a self-doping mechanism. So victories can feed on themselves. Um, the trouble is, as these testo levels build up in your body, at some point they become excessive, and instead of aiding risk-taking, they start impairing it. So they found in animals that the animals, as their testo levels, went to levels above physiological needs. They went out in the open too much, they picked too many fights, they patrolled areas that were too large, and they neglected parenting duties. And as a result, they <laughs> suffered increased rates of predation. And when I saw this model, I thought, that's, what, that's what's going on. Because, you know, a trader puts on a trade and you make an above average profit. What we found on the traders, this first study on the hedge fund trading floor, is that the, tr the profit had to be above average, not something you're used to, but, whoa, I really nailed it this time. You get this surge in testo, and it has the opposite effect of cortisol in causing you to take more risk. So the next trade you put on is even bigger. You get it right again, you get this bump up in your testo, and you're starting to really feel like a, like a, a walking god and you put on an even bigger trade. And the trouble is, the further you go, the trades are not only getting bigger and bigger, but the risk-reward trade-offs are getting worse and worse. You're taking more and more risk for less potential payoff in bigger and bigger sizes until eventually one of these trades goes wrong. But by then, the trade is so huge that you lose more money than you've made on the winning streak that fostered this feeling of invincibility. So that was the model we were working with. We've taken just a model that's been really well tested in animal behavior and applying it to traders. The thing is, when we published this, um, the Financial Times asked me to write an op-ed explaining the results. And at 5 o'clock was a 6 o'clock deadline. The, the editor phoned me and said, this is great, we love this article. We need one last paragraph, 50 words. What are the implications of this? And thinking off the top of my head, I just said, hmm, well, if this testosterone feedback loop actually maybe what's going on in irrational exuberance, then maybe stock market bubbles are a young male phenomenon. And if that's the case, maybe the markets would be more stable if we had more women and older men managing money. And he said, I love it. They put it in, but that one sentence is the only thing I've ever said in my life that went viral. I mean, the FT started running headlines. The FT started running headlines like, Iceland brings in women to clean up men's mess. 
Um, and I went back to my research group and said, look, we've got to do some research to catch up with my big mouth. And so that's when we started sort of, sort of, you know, it's supposed to work the other way around. You're supposed to do the experiment first and then talk about it. But we did it the other way around this time. And it, we, so we started working on the differences in risk-taking between men and women. It was really interesting. Um, what we found is a... Because, you know, when people say, why aren't there more women on trading floors? There's a number of really bad explanations thrown out. Like, one, well, women are just risk-averse. Um, B, they just don't like being around all this macho environment. Um, and none of those are true. First of all, we found that there are no differences in risk preferences between men and women. None whatsoever. It's not where the difference is. Um, they don't like being in a macho environment. Well, I don't think they're that fragile because, you know, at one point, law and medicine were completely male. It didn't stop women from going in. And, you know, now the, I think the, the intake of the medical school at Cambridge was 70% women. So I don't think they're that fragile in, like, heading out into territories that are, you know, were in the past macho environments. Besides that, women are already on the trading floor. You know, they're 50% of the sales force, and that the sales desks are mixed in with the trading desks. So they're already involved in a macho environment, and they probably don't like it, but it doesn't put them off. They're high-paying jobs. What we found, the real difference between men and women, well, there were two things. One, these physiological mechanisms I've been describing to you, that shifting risk preferences, so you take more risk on the upside and too little risk on the downside, which is a destabilizing influence on the business cycle, those mechanisms are much more muted in women. In fact, we just published a beautiful paper just like three weeks ago. The winner effect in males is really powerful, and it doesn't exist in women. Why? They have about 5% of the testosterone as guys. So there are good physiological reasons for believing that um, women, when it comes to managing money, are less hormonal than men. And I'm sorry to betray my sex like that. It's a bit of a slap in the face, but them's the facts. <laughs> facts. Uh, but back to you, Sheila. So th thinking through, again, kind of ways in which catastrophes like this could be prevented. Obviously, we talked about gender as one. But if, if you had to go back and redesign Wall Street, <laughs> tough ask. Yeah, yeah. But, but, what, right. but what are the sort of you know, differences you'd like to see going forward that risk doesn't become a vice, it remains a virtue? Well, one of the big things that happened, especially leading up to the financial crisis that we noticed, was that all these mechanisms were sort of invented to allow people who were kind of initiating risky positions to then offload the risk onto someone else. And one of the best ways to encourage people to self-manage their risk is to force those people to live with the consequences if it doesn't work out well. And this plays itself out on almost every level of the financial system, but just to take an example that everyone knows about, yeah, the financial crisis. So all sorts of little mortgage lenders all over the U.S., you know, uh, started giving out loans, and those people were getting paid to the more loans they made. So they started telling people, well, just just put anything in your, you know, your uh, income box, and okay, you're a, you're a pole dancer. Well, just write down that you're an accountant and put this for your income. So these people were getting loans and buying houses they couldn't afford, and then the mortgage lender would then sell the loan to someone else. And then someone, that person, that bank would sell it to another bank. And then eventually it would end up at a big bank that would bundle it up with a bunch of other mortgages. And they would cut that up into little different pieces. And then they'd sell it to a German bank. And by the end, there was absolutely no connection between whoever had made the decision to make this loan to somebody who had no business having this loan, uh, perhaps even tricking that person into signing on for some kind of crazy mortgage that would balloon up in a few years. And then the, the unwitting German investor who now owns the losses, if that doesn't work out. So 
that, that is a big part of the problem. We've seen that at every level where you have traders, all these young male high testosterone traders, uh, they can lose a lot of money one year, but they, often, they, they sometimes don't lose their jobs. Even if they do lose their jobs, they can get another job somewhere else because there is this sense on Wall Street that if you can take a big risk, that is really desirable. They rarely cut back people's compensation if things go bad a few years down the line. So you might make a $9 million bonus this year, but in, then, in fact, it turns out your trade blows up two years later, like the London whale. This was a famous example of this. They, they had no mechanism to go back to that trader and say, well, actually, you need to give us back all that money. We just had to get a, a bailout. We just had to force our shareholders to pay for this disaster. So I think smart regulation has to kind of incentivize smart risk taking. I mean, that is really an engine of economic growth. You need people to feel motivated to take out a loan and start a business. That is a risk. I mean, that, that's a really important thing to incentivize and encourage. But you also need, you need to teach people and create structures and rules that require people to take a longer term view and to live with the outcome over time and not just uh, in a short short-term period. You're probably not holding your breath for smart regulation coming out of Washington, D.C. any soon. Oh, it's going to be Wait, great. Let's skip that. Yeah, right? yeah, no, it's not looking good. I mean, I'm, I'm not feeling encouraged. Needless yeah, but boards, boards are increasingly asking for it. Yeah. And that's independent that's of who's in power. That's right. Um, in particular, clawback clauses, which allow them to get back paid bonuses if, if it turns out that the trades were, were rotten in some way. I would add to that that I think all the risk management tools that are based on the assumption that risk preferences don't change they got to change because yeah. you know if you're using risk management tools based on that assumption you will always be surprised by behavioral change in your uh, in your firm I know uh, we're going to open up to questions in a minute I have just one thing before we open up because we've primarily spent the last 40 minutes or so talking about risky decision-making by individuals in financial markets and I wonder if I could get you to comment on pushing both those out so uh, how do we think about the implications of a lot of what you've done uh, in terms of your research for groups. Does it help to have groups making decisions? Are they worse off? Are they better off? Uh, and again, what are the implications for things beyond financial markets? How do you think about innovation more generally or risk-taking in launching products and services, that sort of stuff? Yeah, it, groups don't seem to make any difference. <laughs> That's brilliant, isn't that? Yeah, I mean, one of the... Actually, you'll enjoy this. I, um, I was at a conference. There were a lot of endowment managers of endowments there, and the asset managers who are, and hedge funds who are helping the, the endowments. But university endowments um, are just appalling at groupthink. You think that if you've got a group of people in a room talking about the risks that they would like, you know, start arguing and things like that. But it doesn't really work out that way. You get the sort of groupthink and people don't want to stick their heads out and disagree. So endowments, unfortunately, um, have a terrible track record at chasing returns. So they, you know, they're piling into trades when everyone else is piling into them and getting out when everyone else is getting out. And you want exactly the opposite, of course. What I've always thought is that sometimes these physiological changes that are taking place, you don't feel them. You're not aware of them taking place. But someone from the outside can. Um, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, um, I put on a trade in the dollar-yen. I still trade the markets. I thought the Bank of Japan was preparing... Um, to intervene in the currency markets. And I was just dead wrong, and I lost a lot of money. And I told my wife, I said, uh, we just lost a lot of money on dollar-yen. And she said, I knew you were going to lose money on that trade. And I got very defensive, as one does, and said, why? What do you know about Japanese monetary policy? And she said, nothing, but I know you. And, you <laughs> and she said, you just didn't look like you do when you get the market right. And I thought, whoa, that's really cool. <laughs> So, I, you know, I, I deal with a lot of corporations who are asking me this very question, and I say, no, the, the, the panel, the, 
the group is not going to help you. But if you're big enough to have something like um, a chief medical officer, have him or her sit in the room with you and watch the group and see what you know, he or she sees taking, taking place in your body language. I mean, that's what risk management was like when I went to Wall Street. The, the head of the trading desk would look down the aisle and say, Coates, what's your position? I'd say, I'm long 100 million tens. He'd say, you know, are you comfortable with that? And I'd go, yeah, there's not much going on. The markets are liquid. I think the market's going up. And unbeknownst to him and me, he was scrutinizing my behavior, my posture, the words I was choosing, my tone of voice, all these things. And he was probably taking in information. If I, did, he look a, did I look a bit like sneaky or did I, did I look scared or whatever? And that whole sort of side of risk management got squeezed out when back office and IT and risk management models took over. And they started, risk management became what they call risk metrics, where all they were looking at were the positions of the bank and stressing them up and down, five standard deviations, correlations, breaking down, etc. And the whole sort of observing the humans was no longer practiced. So I think there's, I'm a big believer of having chief medical officers sit in on investment processes and watch people. So I, I think groups sound, I mean, it depends on who's in the group. And uh, I, think, I think a diverse group of people is helpful. However, I would also add the caveat that it also depends on what the culture of the particular organization is. And if people in the group do not feel comfortable voicing dissent, then it does not matter who you have in that group. And that often comes from the top. And I, I will, just because I recently did an event that revisited the Enron case. I mean, Enron, we all know, was one of, one of the most famous corporate frauds we, uh, you know, in history. And the company shut down ultimately. But a lot of what was going on there was brought to light by a whistleblower who was a woman, Sharon Watkins. I, I have noticed that a disproportionate number of whistleblowers are women, I mean, relative to their percentages in these companies, and I think that's sort of interesting. But she, you know, she has talked about how there was no tolerance for dissenting views. They were, they were not willing to entertain negativism from their employees. And that came right from the CEO and the founder of the company. That, that is really the problem. I mean, it, a group is fine in the right environment. As far as risk in the broader economy, I think what has happened is that we have a financial sector that has been allowed and encouraged to take a lot of risk without consequence. There has been some regulatory kind of clampdown on Wall Street. However, we have, a, you know, we have this ongoing problem of the fact that very few high-level people who are involved in financial crisis frauds were ever prosecuted. And there's a lot of frustration about that, and there's a real sense that that has led, you know, that has sort of taught people in that industry that, that there's really no dire consequence for them to take risk and commit fraud. And, you know, the downside of that is immense. And then we've seen a decline in the right kind of risk-taking in other parts of the economy. So the, the risk of failure as a small business owner, are much, they seem much greater on a relative basis to the risk of actually suffering by making a, a really stupid trade at a big bank. And I think that is um, a, a real imbalance that needs to be corrected. And that is a kind of a policy question as much as a culture question. And uh, that is one that's facing the new Trump administration. And mm -hmm. we're going to have to see how up to the job they are. Well, it's, it's facing uh, the administration in Canada because we've been talking about being more innovative and you know, Toronto in particular being a center of excellence in terms of the innovation sphere. But again, how do we encourage people to take the right kind of risk? That's a question that I don't think anyone's really gotten down to nailing down. 
would be a good time to open up for questions and comments. There's one right here. So what I was thinking about was um, how the risk-taking, um, especially the physiological um, aspects, could change from country to country because it's fairly well known that the United States is way more, um, has a much bigger risk appetite than Canada does. But I was wondering, are there any explanations for why that is beyond the psychological um, America attitude? Could it be um, different demographics or anything other than the general attitudes? And I guess also going for that, with the uh, federal government's uh, budget being more so for promoting um, businesses and innovation, I was wondering, do you think that we might be able to take any possible physiological differences in terms of risk-taking between us and the states to promote risk-taking? Are there molecules we can inject in the Canadian blood? <laughs> big money-making opportunity but, here for big, you. Big question, though. I mean, I, I think, you know, what explains risk preferences across cultures and countries? Yeah, um, I, I guess the scientifically honest answer to that question is I don't know. I, there's been very few studies of like differing physiologies between countries and geographical areas. I did see one study years ago when I started doing the research on testo, um, looking at testo levels compared between America and a few other countries. And they were, well, it was just looking at one, like, downtown Boston, I think, compared to a tribe in Bolivia or Peru, I can't remember which, and they were much higher. And I think it's possible that if you take people and put them in an economic system that is much more um, competitive, their physiology will prepare for that. Are Canadians more risk-averse than America? Maybe we are. I mean, I've always, you know, when I was here, we were taught that, that America had the frontier and we didn't. You know, Canadians, we just sat in Toronto and Montreal and waited for the government to build us a railway, give away free land, and then we said, oh, all right, we'll go. I mean, we were sort of, that's what I was taught. I think there probably is a lot to that as well. In terms of the physiology, I haven't, I'm really leery about doing between-group comparisons like that. So it, it's interesting. I think I'll steer clear of it. There's <laughs> a question up here. Thank you. My question kind of leads on a little bit to what you asked. Um, I was wondering, you know, you mentioned the study about how women obviously uh, are less risky than men due to testosterone levels. I was wondering if there's been any studies among men. Pardon me? I didn't say that. Well, I, they have people, the people with more testosterone take more risks. They don't, their, their risk preferences are more stable. So if you take them at baseline, men and women have exactly the same risk preferences. Mm -hmm. It's just that when men start winning, mm -hmm. their That's risk preferences it, start changing, whereas yes. women's don't. Okay, so... So they're more stable. I hope my question still, still is uh, applicable. Um, okay. I was wondering if there's been any studies about men who, to, to increase their testosterone levels you know, by taking steroids in the risk industry, um, or sorry, the trading industry, um, if their performance levels are, are higher or they perform better due to the higher testosterone and the steroids that they're taking. And you know, just like how athletes uh, take steroids yeah, yeah. to perform better, yeah. Yeah, the, there, I've been interviewed by a couple of journalists who said that there were dodgy clinics around Wall Street now where you could go and get testosterone gels. Steroids go straight through your membrane, so you, just, you put testosterone on as a gel and it goes through your skin. You have to be very careful if you do that, that your wife or your children don't touch you because then the testo can actually pass into their, their blood. But the thing about taking, taking testosterone to improve your risk-taking is that it's like building a, a, a sports car with the accelerator on full and no brake. 
And it, you don't want that. <laughs> what you find with, with elite athletes, like Olympic class athletes, is that their baseline levels, these hormones, are actually quite low. And then when they go into the competition, they spike up really high because that's when you need them. The testo to prepare you for the competition, the cortisol and the adrenaline to recruit metabolic reserves, etc. As soon as the, the event is over, they come right back down. So really good athletes, a trained physiology is one that's incredibly volatile. It spikes up when needed and it comes right back down, whereas amateur athletes, they don't go up as high and they stay elevated. So it starts impairing their performance. Taking testosterone gel to improve your risk taking is, you know, for every possible reason, it's a cuckoo thing to do. Then again, there might be some smart entrepreneur who thinks that they could make a quick buck selling stuff like that. Have you oh, yeah, seen yeah. stuff like this? Question brings to mind a very bizarre yes. uh, lawsuit yes. I encountered <laughs> involving a former employee of Steve Cohen's, but this was a completely weird case where uh, this, a trader filed a lawsuit, kind of a harassment lawsuit against his former employer at SAC, SAC, and um, one of his allegations was that he had been forced to take steroids and testosterone <laughs> by his boss uh, to try and make him, make him a more, better risk taker. And um, it was so odd, but yet weirdly seemed possibly plausible in the right environment. Um, but uh, I, I believe the case was dismissed. Let's take the last question for today's session. Uh, thanks. I was just wondering, John, if you might be able to say um, a bit more about the, the effects of chronic high cortisol levels, because I guess when you were, when you were talking about that, uh, it reminded me of, uh, I think it was The Spirit Level, uh, the book that um, sort of examines increasing income inequality across all sorts of countries. And one of the things uh, that I think I remember in that was this sort of observation that uh, one of the effects of chronic uh, poverty was high cortisol on a kind of a, a long-standing basis. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it, 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 the, the stress response, you could, I could spend my entire life studying it. It's absolutely fascinating. I mean, it kept us alive. It's kept organisms alive. It's a very ancient mechanism in keeping organisms alive for a million years. We're in the odd situation that we can be subjected to chronic stress, and that doesn't happen so much in the natural world. You know, when we were evolving, stressors were brief one way or another. But now this mechanism which keeps us alive prepares us for movement. If our blood pressure is being increased and it stays increased, it becomes susceptible to hypertension. You're flooding all these nutrients into your blood, free fatty acids, triglycerides, glucose, to prepare you for movement, but you're not using them. So after, you know, a couple of years of chronic stress, you become susceptible to high cholesterol type 2 diabetes, and the nutrients, since you're not using them, get deposited around your waist as, as abdominal obesity. You have immune disorders, you become susceptible to recurrent viruses like colds, flus, herpes, susceptible to gastric acid or gastric ulcers because your digestive system has been impaired. Um, you have difficulty having sex because your reproductive tract has been shut down because you don't need to be having sex when you're in the middle of a stressor. So it's a real killer, and the, you know, the things that, that cause the most pronounced increase in cortisol are uncontrollability, novelty, and uncertainty. And so I don't know if it's a lower standard of living itself, it's the uncertainty that then you're subjected to. You really have, you know, when you're poor now, you really have no control over your life. There's one thing when you're on the farm and everyone was sort of living a subsistence life, it can be, you know, in a bad crop year, it could be difficult, but... You know, we're living in cities now. If you're unemployed, you have no income. The, un the uncertainty is just debilitating, and that's why you get these extremely elevated levels of, of cortisol leading on to, you know, every chronic disease known to the medical profession. It's a real, it's really interesting, and it's a killer. 
but very few people understand the real mechanism of chronic stress. They should learn, everybody should learn it. All right. I've been taking cop copious notes here, so just in case somebody asks me what is risk again, um, <laughs> I, I think I have a lot more of a nuanced response this time than I did back in 1993. Uh, John Coach, Sheila Kalakar, thank you so very much for being part of for today. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Spur Radio, Risk in the Economy, with John Coates and Sheila Kohatkar, moderated by Dilip Soman, and recorded live on April 9, 2017, at the University of Toronto. Spur's festival partner is Shirk, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Our 2017 national supporters are Wabanisa Insurance, the RBC Foundation, and the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Our government supporters include the Canada Council for the Arts, Canadian Heritage, and the Community Foundations of Canada through their Canada 150 program. Spur Toronto supporters include the J.P. Bickle Foundation, Culture Ireland, and the Toronto Public Library. And our media partner was Now Magazine. Spur Toronto is produced by the Literary Review of Canada and Diaspora Dialogues. The festival director of Spur is Helen Walsh. This podcast was edited by our associate producer for Spur Toronto, Anthony Burton. My name is Michael Booth, director of production. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Stay tuned to Spur Radio for more great content from past festivals, and please follow us on Twitter at SpurFest and visit our website, spurfestival.ca, for information on upcoming festivals and events and to show your support for our national conversation. Thank you for listening.